Technology. Man, you done Good evening and welcome to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, of course, and um, just really excited about some things that's um, happening on the network. Y'all know um, this pro- particular program has been lagging in terms of doing live broadcasting. And so I'm getting back into that, but we got a lot of big changes coming up uh, with Black Talk Radio Network. It's about to be spun off into a for-profit spun off from the nonprofit so that it can better help the nonprofit work that we do through the Black Talk Media Project. And so, you know, tonight is a special program for me whenever you're talking to an old friend. And so, but tonight's program is about bridging the divide. Uh, I'm having a conversation with my old comrade, Ross Munyaga, uh, Nosa Quarry, and me and this brother go way back. And so we hope to just talk to him about his life, which has been deeply intertwined with some of the most influential black moments in American history. You know, when I first met him, he told me how he was served by the Black Panther Party. Um, by their, I think they had like a breakfast program and he'll share those details later, but I met him later on in life when he was an adult uh, as a member of the Black Autonomy Federation for a long time listeners of Black Talk Radio Network. Y'all probably remember Black Autonomy Federation Radio, which uh, Ross was a co-host. So um, he has a, a very interesting story. We were joking and uh, when we were talking before the program, I think a couple of days ago when we were talking about doing this program and I sent him some questions, right? He was like, man, I could write a book, all right? (laughs) And so maybe he should write that book because I think his life has been interesting and hearing the stories that he shared on Black Autonomy Federation Radio. And I think he has a lot to teach, you know, uh, uh, people his age, people my age and, and younger. Um, but you can learn from anyone, but I think he has some some really deep life lessons to share. So we're going to, you know, explore his early life under the guiding influence of the Black Panther Party and his vital work with the Black Autonomy Federation. Now, if you're an activist or a student of history, I happen to be both. Or if you're someone passionate about social change, I'm that too. Uh, definitely an abolitionist. Y'all know that. But we're hoping, you know, that that this podcast um, will just give you a glimpse into the heart of struggle that different generations have went through uh, in this country. So, Ross, long time, you know, no talk to. <laughs> but it's good to, that you could join us tonight. How are you? I'm doing good, my brother. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I really appreciate uh being back on Black Talk Radio. We missed you, man. Well, I missed you. You know what I'm saying? uh, (laughs) I really appreciate that. Yeah. And and before we get into um, the interview, there was something I wanted to uh, give you a chance to address because you had us scared for a while, man. You know, but but, um, praise be to Ja, as I know you, as you refer to the creator, that you and your family um, were able to escape with your lives with, with that fire at your home. So how's that going? And, you know, you had a little scare with your health. So on a personal level, man, we really want to know how you and the family doing. Oh, man, you know, my family is resonant. You know, my queen and I are resonant because, uh, you know, we have faced many obstacles. You know, she... Uh, got together with a rebel and uh, an activist. And uh, we've been together almost 40 something years now. So, you know, this this was another obstacle to cross. Uh, interesting enough, we were not there when the fire took place. My son was there house, house you know, and uh, to this day, I got a report from the city on how it started. You know, but most of the damage was done 
by the fire department, you know, because they just, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't even go in. They just sprayed the whole house from the outside, broke the kitchen window and just sprayed it from one end of the house to the other. And that's how they, they just put out the fire and left. So, so it's not like we see on TV where they be running in, rushing in to burning buildings and, and what have you. My neighborhood, no. No, it wasn't like that. Wow. No, uh, put the fire out and let's get the hell out. That's what the city fire department did. And then when I got the uh, full report, I never got one, but I got a bill for $200 for them boarding up what they broke. So. <laughs> Knife in North America, my brother. <laughs> wow. That's that's just sad, but it's not uncommon, which makes it even sadder. Um yeah. because it's so uncommon. You know, on a on a um, another on a similar story, I could tell you like like I live in a historic, I call it historic, um, traditionally black community in the country. You know, right. um Charlotte is the major uh metropolitan which is like five minutes away then gastonia um but we live in a rural area in gaston county and so right before you get to mount holly city limits is the end of well it's not the end of it but um that's where they put the city limits and right when you cross into what we call old highway 27 or i call ranking town going back to when it was a colony and some of our people was here and and so this guy had a seizure at a softball game that was being played on the ball field. And this is all owned by the black community, run by a black community. And they be having, you know, a, a bunch of events there, having games, um, um, family reunions. We had one of our family reunions down there. And so they call, they call 911, like everybody would think to do, call 911. So they call 911. It routed them to Mount Holly. And they told them that they couldn't dispatch, you know, uh, ambulance to come get this guy, that it had to be one of the counties, uh, which which is quite further. It's, it's further away. And and so this man could have lost his life, except for there was some black people with some health care uh, skills that worked in health care that was there to help him. Right. Wow. Yeah, well, redlining communities is still very much part of North America. The reason why I say North America because I'm in Canada. Right. And uh, I wasn't uh, going to divulge that information, but <laughs> <laughs> since you went ahead, but yeah, um, you're in Canada, and we have listeners in Canada. Actually, you know, uh, Black Talk Radio ha has reach. But right. let, let's jump into this interview, man, because we only got you for a short time. And um, so we don't, you know, want to lose you anytime soon. But can you start by telling us just a little bit about your early childhood? Share what you shared with me when we first met, you know, putting together Black Black Autonomy Federation Radio. And you told me, I think y'all call yourselves Panther Cubs, or is it a different name if you didn't have a parent in the Black Panther uh, uh, organization, but what were you? You were a Panther kid, though. I heard you describe it like that. So can you share a little bit about your early life? How how did they come into your life? Okay, well, um, you know, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and I like to call the place where I grew up was the Black Belt of Southern California because I grew up in a neighborhood where L.A., Compton, Willowbrook and Watts all converged. Like we were right in the center of that. I grew up in the center of that, you know. And uh, uh, about four blocks away on a street called El Segundo and Willowbrook, the Black Panther headquarters were, were there. You know, they were stationed there. And I first learned about the Black Panthers, I was about maybe nine, 10 years old, but I, it was the sisters that I first ran into. Like they were selling the paper and uh, they were so respectful, even though, you know, our group, you know, we were ghetto kids, you know, we were kids from the hood. And, you know, we would see them when we go to a place called Clark's Drugs, which was the nearest store to us. When we go buy our ice cream or candy, we see them out front 
And uh, we had teased them, you know, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, brother, that's what they used to say when, when people walked by to sell their paper, and we'd be mimicking the, uh, laughing about it. And, you know, they started laughing, too. They didn't get mad, but, you know, they told us, hey, you know, once you take a paper, take it to your parents or read it yourself, you know what I'm saying? This was and, a free uh, paper? Huh? It was a free paper? Well, you know, no. Okay. I mean, for us, it was free. Yeah, I, I was just trying to refresh my memory called Sister right. Jonina, um, right. you know, uh, Lorenzo Irvin's wife. She told me that she was like the national editor for it, if I remember correctly. Yes, Jonina was uh, ahead of the uh, Black Panther paper for a long time, okay. you know, the, and for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a journalist, by the way. But you but know. you you mentioned that you first read about him when you were nine years old, and so I assume you read about him before you met the met the sisters on the, on the corner with the paper. So where did you read about him in? In the newspaper, man. Like uh, okay. when the black got to realize when the Black Panthers first started, and in California, you know they started in Oakland. Uh, they were all over the press. You know what I'm saying? They were all over. And not always in a positive light either. Not always in a positive light. But, uh, you know, the community were, you know, pretty much glad to see these brothers and sisters. You know what I'm saying? Because they were standing. And uh, my parents came from that uh, generation that came up from the South, you know, to escape all the tyranny and cruelty and brutality that was happening in the South. They came in the 1940s and moved to California, which a lot of, of the Panthers during that time, Huey and, and others, many others shared that same experience as I did. You know, that they, you know, we were like first generation there in Cali looking for a better life. And, you know, there was this brick wall still, even in Cali. And with that, with the civil rights movement in full effect, and with everything that was going on during that era, you know, uh, the Panthers feel a great place during that period. Well, that's a perfect segue. So how did the Black Panther Party impact you specifically as a uh, child? Could you share some specific incidents or influence? You just shared one about y'all were were mimicking and teasing the sisters on the corner and they, you know, start laughing. And so, but what, what were the most impactful things that you, you remember about specific in, incidences? Well, uh, you know, by them sisters, so they carried themselves with grace. You know, they had afros, they were beautiful, you know, and uh, just the way they treated the community. So I would roll my little stingray bike down there one day to the Panther headquarters. And uh, I saw they were doing And when I walked in, everybody was like, hey, little brother, hey, little brother, you know, like treating me with respect. You know, I'm about 10 years old then. And uh, I asked, you know, uh, they asked, well, what you want? You need something to eat? You know, you hungry? You need anything? And I said, no, nah, I'm just checking things out. You know what I mean? And then they said, would you like to help us sell the paint? You know, one brother. And then I seen, uh, I didn't know who he was at one time. Uh, brother came from the back, and I was Bunchy Carter. And he said, hey, young blood, you know, and uh, smiled at me. And he went on about his business, you know, and I found out later who that was, you know what I'm saying? But they just showed a lot of love, man. And I said, sure, you know, but I had to ask my parents first, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I took the papers anyway, and, so, and I got home, I was hiding it from my parents. You know, because uh, I didn't know what they'd feel about it. Mm. You know, showed my aunt first, like my aunt and uncle raised me, right? So I showed my aunt the paper, right? She said, "Oh, where'd you get this?" Uh, I went uh, down the street, you know, a few blocks. You know. She said, "Well, you Black Panther now?" I'm like, "No, I'm just, you know, helping them out with the paper." So that's how it all started. Like I developed wow. that relationship. Wow. So I was like. At the club, I would say. <laughs> okay, okay. So, 
let's fast forward a little bit. You start growing up. You were 10 at the time when you, when you took the papers to uh, help with the paper. And when you said you first met uh, Bunchy Carter, right? You said, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, so can you describe what it was like growing up? Okay, here, here you are as an adolescent. I don't know you hang you you have contact with them how long up until your teens or whatever. But when when did you notice that it was like a, that they were engaged in political activism? You know, to use one term, but a lot of social activism or social work um, that a lot of people don't know about. Well, you know, just from the ongoing you know, fights they were engaged in. And I'm not talking about physical fights. I'm talking about, you know, their ideological mm -hmm. and political fights that they were engaged in. Mm -hmm. And the whole community, you know, witnessed that, you know, from Oakland all the way to Compton, even into San Diego, you know. So I grew up hearing all this, seeing all this, you know, and just hearing most of selling the newspaper every day. But even going to some of the meetings, you know, like I had a basic understanding of what was going on. And the greatest impact well, were down on 41st and Central when the Panthers were attacked, you know. And, I, I remember you mentioning that um, to me. I don't know if we was on air or, you know, the conversations we have off air, uh, you know. But um, didn't you witness the police, like, getting shoot out and kill some Panthers, like attack their headquarters or something? Well, no Panthers were killed okay. in that fight, but there was like almost, uh, like they spent hours, I'd say maybe 14, I can't remember the exact, but the Panthers held their ground. And so it was a siege. But yes, but the whole community went out there. I even went out there in my bike, you know, because uh, if uh, anybody was going to get killed, the community I've never seen from Watts to Compton were ready. Certain sisters and brothers were, we were there. And my parents didn't want me to go out there because they didn't want me to get hurt. But the community was just, you know, the cops had it all blocked off, but we were there, you know, where they had it blocked off. You know, we had ourselves surrounded that area also. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I want to take a sidebar um, right quick. And because the scene that you just described, so I was having a conversation with a younger brother today. He's like a student um, uh, pursuing his PhD. I, I believe I could be wrong, but he's a student and he's an activist. He's an abolitionist as, as well, but he's like college age and he lives in New York, although he's in Alabama now. And um, he's trying to get this grant to come here. But we were talking about Black August, right? We were actually talking about this new AI technology and what have you. And so I was, you know, telling him the pros and cons that I had discovered in the two weeks that I had been using it. But really, we've all been using some form of AI, you know, for decades, you know, you can take it back to the 1990s, uh, the different programs, but it, but that's neither here nor there. But I asked it to write an essay. I gave it some information about Black August in it, and I told it to give me an argumentative uh, essay that's going to give, like, like, two perspectives. And it talked about how Black August was good in, in promoting unity uh, remembering history, uh, raising awareness about political prisoners. Rochelle McGee, the oldest serving um, political prisoner in the United States, just got out. He's in his 80s, and right. there's been a couple of other ones that's gotten out before him. But unfortunately, and that's the system of prison slavery is designed to do, and, 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 and not only try to kill their minds, but kill their bodies, um, um, you know, these brothers unfortunately passed away. Um, but it talked about as a negative about Black August, talking about that some people say it's a divisive, it's divisive, it's not divisive to the Black community. Well, I guess we do have some Uncle Toms and whatnot, some proxy races, but but 
it talked about it also may be seen as celebrating violence because the people you're commemorating have been accused of crimes and been convicted of crimes. And, and so it, some people, some critics might say, oh, you're celebrating violence. But what you just described right there is the police violence that was going, that has been going on since they were the slave catchers, because, you know, that's where their institution started. You know, some of us abolitionists still refer to them as slave catchers um, for those that want to be that and play that role in that function in this society that we live in. But did you know, in me doing my research with this Blue Lives Matter, when they came out as an opposition of to Black Lives Matter, um, did you know that that actually started in the 50s in Watts, in that area of Southern California, right where you're talking about? And that how that police chief, I can't recall his name right now, but that police chief had used heavy-handed tactics and that it talked about the Watts riot was a response to pent-up anger over Black people being murdered every day, just like it's still going on to this day. I mean, other people getting murdered too, but we specifically have been the intended target and we are disproportionately uh, killed. And, and, and so I'm like, okay, if I was to be in a debate with someone, we're going to point by point, like this country don't celebrate violence. So what is 4th of July, if not a celebration of the violence used to get your so-called independence from the uh, uh, king of, of, you know, the UK, the king of Britain, the British Empire, and what have you. What is Blue Lives Matter? Young people celebrate, you know, the brutality. They celebrate the military, which I was in, which I don't allow people to thank me for my service. But I know I said a lot, man, but you just triggered that when you described that scene. So you said that that the police laid siege to the Panthers headquarters and they might have killed them if not for the community showing up and showing that they had their back. That's 100 percent. That's 100 percent what you just said. They would have killed him. Matter of fact, it was just weeks after the murder of Fred Hampton Sr., you know what I'm saying, when when they attacked the L.A. branch. So, uh, yeah, uh, I grew up around violence. Like, I was eight years old. I woke up one morning, and there were Army trucks going down my street. I'm laying in my front yard, and I just stopped. And I looked, and I'm saying, what the heck is going on? Then I seen smoke coming from the area of the Watts area. I could see it from my house. And that's when the riots were jumping off. Yeah, the uprisings. I didn't mean to use the uh, colonizers language, but I meant, you know, the uprising. Right, right, right. And so, uh, yes, it was the uprising, you know. And uh, uh, that had a big impact on me, you know, because I felt always different. Like our my community, always felt different. Like it was like living, you know, basically in a war zone, you know, like, uh, you know, we were uh, in non-grata territory, basically, you know, and, uh, you know, we were police like none of them, you know, and those uh, uh, armies, the National Guard, I didn't see them in places like Torrance, Beverly Hills or any place else, only within our community. You know, and, uh, you know, that told me that, yeah, you know, they were taking care of the internal colony. You know, uh, they were making us understand that we were constantly under siege. And that's the way it felt. Mm-hmm. That's back in the 60s and 70s, that we were constantly under siege and that the police can do anything to you. You know, and as a child, I witnessed that. I witnessed cops beat brothers in the front. You know, in front of the church I went to one Sunday morning, I went to church across the street, you know, uh, three cops were beating this black man like he was nothing. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, wow. You know, the pastor didn't even say anything. Y'all, y'all come on in the church now. You know what I'm saying? You know, and I'm like, you know, no, this can't continue. So growing up, you know, I had that kind of, uh, you know, basic understanding from experience that uh, mm-hmm. we were uh, a uh, down-pressed people. You know, we were people that were held 
in check by this type of violence. You know? yes. And, uh, yes. Now, something I want to mention to the, to the listeners, and you, you probably already seen the flick, but I keep telling people, you mentioned Fred Hampton uh, Sr., who was the chairman, he's known affectionately as Chairman Fred, um, who was of the entire state chapter of, of Illinois, was he not? Uh, yes, he was. Right. Because, I mean, when there were other chairmen before him. Right, right, right. But he was based in Chicago. And what I'm getting to is the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. Now, you know, I've interviewed and, and we're, you know, social media friends and, and uh, but his son you know, also named uh, Fred um, Hampton. Uh, he's junior. And him and his mom, who is featured in that film, Judas and the Black Messiah, worked at, were hired as consultants. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, you know, Academy Award nominee. I don't know if he won anything. But that other brother, uh, the African brother, I can't think of his name right now. Um, but he didn't play in some other roles. And I thought he did an excellent portrayal of Chairman, of Chairman Fred. But what, what um, uh, Fred Hampton Jr. said about him, what impressed him about him, because like the creators, the producers or whatever, really um, relied or allowed the family to be like, keep things in check. No distortions, no historic. But it talked about in there, it has a scene with Hoover. And a lot of people today, they're not going to read in their history books, um, um, whether I'm in North Carolina or Florida, no matter how much history they ban, you're not going to read about COINTELPRO. You know, that's why these January 6th insurrectionists think they political prisoners and think that the FBI only been targeting, uh, just started targeting people or just became corrupt. But I, have you seen the film and what, what are your thoughts on it? Because it speaks to that outright violence that you just talked about. It was part of a program. The FBI with state, local police who were targeting, trying to frame people, set people up and outright assassinating them. Yes. Um, you know, it took me a while before I saw that movie. Like I, when it was in the show, I couldn't go see it because I didn't want it to trigger some things that I just have about that whole time period and my love for, for Fred, you know. But once I finally saw it, I thought it was well done and I centered and it really centered on the, you know, the love between Fred and Sister Accord, who was, uh, you know, still a good comrade and, uh, you know, a friend that I consider a, a close friend, her and Fred. Really. But uh, it took me a while to that movie, man, because uh, it just triggered a lot of stuff back in that period, and I couldn't watch it from the beginning. It took me two years before I finally saw it. Okay. But I, I thought it was well done. And you know, you know, Hollywood got to put their little things in it, right? Their little isms in it. But uh, yeah, I thought it was was a good film. Okay. Yeah. Now, for the most, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. What were you saying? No, I, I said for the most part, I thought it was good, good film. Right. So let's fast forward. Black Autonomy Federation. When when did Black Autonomy Federation enter into your life? Well, you gotta understand i mean that's a real fast forward you know after the demise of the panthers like it left a void especially in my teenage years okay you know, you know where a lot of brothers who grew up like me we were just angry you know and the gang thing started growing even more you know and you know the panthers were gone you know but the crips were on the rise and the crips started as a, you know, the community revolutionary international party. Like they were, you know, uh, you know, trying to fill that void, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm sure like the counterinsurgency, you know, got put in the game and, you know, they went the path of uh, drugs and gangsters, you know, but they still had a love for the community because uh, both the Bloods and Crips back then lived by a cold. You know, so 
in um, after the stroke when when I was in high school, about when I was seventeen in the twelfth grade, I started this organization called Black Youth Awareness Council. Okay, you know, and from that, you know, uh, uh, we were doing some real, you know, community organizing, but student organizing, and we were trying to organize uh, a city citywide, both Compton School District and an A School District Black Youth Awareness Council all over Southern California in, in the schools. We have chapters of it. Okay. You know? And uh, from that, I ran across brothers that were, you know, part of uh, the entire revolutionary movement uh, back in the day. And when I say entire, like they were the catalysts for a lot of the black liberation movements. And that was members of RAM, you know, and, uh, you know, and, uh, I had much respect. BL, where, where was BL, uh, what is the BLA at the time, Black Liberation Army? Uh, the Black Liberation Army was an underground segment of the Black Panther Party. Okay. Yeah, uh, like, you know, there's something, you know, totally different, but, it's all cup. But I'm I saying, know. but they were active underground because you had mentioned, you know, the void, but I'm trying to place that that their activity, Sister Osada Shakur and others, um, at that period in your life. So you were in high school while they right. were doing that. Right. Had been forced yeah. underground and eventually, you know, forced to but, leave the country. Right. They were underground. Okay. And that's why, and they were mainly centered on the West Coast. I mean, on the East Coast back then, you know, because of the whole thing with Asada and uh, and uh, Sundiata and all of them. And uh, by them being underground, we didn't get the news about that. I didn't know anything about the BLA till about 1976, my second year in university. You know what I'm saying? Okay. You know, but in that, like, uh, I learned a lot from the members of... Uh, Revolutionary Action Movement at that time, and uh, mixing their ideology, well, understanding their ideology and growing in, in their ideology, it just made me uh, more uh, humble and uh, dedicated and committed, you know, activists, black activists during that time, because they fell into the, they filled in a lot of gaps that. I didn't know and that I didn't have, you know, even with the beginning of, of the Black Liberation Movement and even how the Panthers. Well, what were know. some of those gaps, if you don't mind sharing? Well, one is that, you know, a lot of people don't really know the Panther Party uh, came out of uh, RAM, the Revolutionary Action Movement. You know, and, uh, you know, Newton kind of talks about that. In this book, you know, know. yeah, to die for the people, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions in, in, in what he said, but I won't get into all that. Okay. It's just people should know that there was a group that was tied to Malcolm and that was tied to uh, uh, a lot of legends of our moment who, who went farther back and they had a experience of past struggle and they were moving towards, you know, a black libertarian movement, but, you know, quietly and effectively. And that's what they wanted to maintain, mm. you know. They didn't want to go under, above ground. And I think uh, Bobby and you had problems with that. And that's how the Black Panther Party started. And the rest is history. Okay. And that's all I Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, I understand. So, so, go ahead. And so, yeah, so it was like uh, during that time, like uh, 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 RAM, uh, you know, the African People's Party, those organizations kind of filled in that gap for me in, in terms of helping me grow, you know, ideologically and politically as a young Black activist, you know. So how much and, later would... Um, Black Autonomy Federation in, entered because I would say by that time you probably were seasoned 
you know, had had some experience under your uh, belts. So what kind of activities, you know, that were you involved in that led you to Black Autonomy Federation? And, um, you know, what are some of the things you learned from them, like you mentioned that you learned from these other different organizations? Well, well, you know, Black Autonomy came after, you're right, I was well-seasoned and after I spent, you know, some time in uh, the military, you know, some time in Africa. And, uh, you know, I was a student organizer on the, at the university level for a while. And I lived there, went into the military, then, you know, spent some time in Africa. And, uh, yeah. and can, can I, can, let's, let's stop right here for a moment. Because I couldn't remember, and I didn't, we were having the technical difficulties and I meant to ask you, but it seemed like I remembered that you were a veteran because we had that in common because we talked yeah. about it and what have you. And, and so, you know, that I learned a real, I learned a lot from my experiences in the United States military. I was in the U S army. I learned discipline to be more disciplined. I already had some discipline from organized sports, but, and from my parent, my mom, but, um, you know, that really taught me how to be self, you know, make yourself do what you know you, you got to do. You know, you don't need nobody You teach you how to take the initiative. But then that is the time that my life kind of uh, went off the mainstream and more radical, I would say. And, and for those that choose to use that term, I don't look at it as a negative term. But I became radicalized by reading Malcolm X's biography during the Gulf War, you know, when Daddy H.W. Bush was talking about bombing them, them people for 40 days and 40 nights, you know, joking about all these people you about to kill. And then my perspective of the world and, and my place in it really changed. The, uh, the L.A. uprisings happened with Rodney King, you know, and me and some of my, my comrades that was in my unit at the time, we were stationed in Hawaii. And we I was like, yo, yo, dog, if they call it this blow up and, and meaning get bigger. And they deployed us. We regular army, so the chances of that is low. But if we got deployed and they gave us live rounds and told us to fire on our people, who you firing on? On, on, on the people, or are you going to turn that gun on that on that person who gave you that unlawful order? You know what I'm saying? Because it would have been an unlawful order to, to, to uh, do that against American citizens. But, but anyway... What led you? College, lack of college money, not wanting to go into debt. I was part of the, the uh, what they call the poverty draft. You, you hear what I'm saying? Didn't have parents that could afford to just pay my tuition and, and all of that. So I decided to go the U.S. Army. What led you to the Army? And, and did you have any conflicts, internal conflicts, like I just described to you while you were in there? Well, for me, like... Uh... I was led to the Marine Corps and basically it was to escape urban blights. You dig what I'm saying? And, Poverty uh, draft sound like to me. Exactly. And also, uh, it, it was either, let's just put it in straight, give it to you straight. It was either jail or the Marine Corps for, okay. me, for me back then. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, uh, I chose the Marine Corps, but the kind of judge chose it for me. But uh, I ended up in the Marine Corps and ended up being stationed in Hawaii. And they put me in a frontline unit in the beginning. And, uh, you know, we would go to the field every day. And I'm saying, man, this is crazy. I was, I, they gave me four years. And we were going to the field every day, grunts coming back dirty. You know how Hawaii got that red dirt. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so, it was uh, being tired of that. I told a friend, man, you know, uh, we saw these guys and they were recon. And I'm like, they only went to the field when the whole battalion went to the field. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, man, for my you know, partner, you know, you know, we went to boot camp together. I said, man, why don't we get in that? Hell, we ain't got to go to boot camp every damn week. He said, sure, yeah, let's do it, you know. I ended up uh, getting into that 
trying out for it. And I made it. My buddy didn't. And I ended up becoming recon, which, you know, uh, which got involved with special ops and, and other things. And, and that's how I spent the rest of my time in the Marine Corps at Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. That's where I was stationed. And, and I do understand, though, the pressure and on purpose, on purpose. That's why they won't give you a uh, pass like uh, college for all you know, tuition free schools and things like because they need the cannon fodder. They need people to go kill other non-white people so that white supremacy can stay on top. And, right. and so, but I mean, I, I just, that was the first time, man, I was like, like, do I, I, I was like really felt powerless, you know what I'm saying? And how these people really had control, you know, in the military, man, especially if you was a Marine, they pretty much control your life or try to, you know what I'm saying? 24 seven. And, yeah. and, and then when you look at some of the wars now, I don't know why you were in, if you ever got deployed to a, uh, deployed to a war zone, but I did not feel like it was, I was that politically active or thinking about politics uh, when I went into the military um, because I knew they had the power to send me, send me to war. So I started paying attention to politics. That's why I started paying attention to it. But while I was sitting over there in Saudi Arabia, you know, um, working on the communications network, I was never a grunt or anything like that. And then I just started reading the bomb data assessment reports, and I was seeing all the civilians being killed. And I was like, this is morally wrong. You know what I'm saying? And then just hearing the stories and, and I was like, man, this is not for me. I got to get out. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you had the same attitude that developed within myself, mm -hmm. you know, like, like to get out. But uh, I did go into missions that were off the books in terms of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't talked about, you know, and the uh -huh. war was been over, but uh, yeah. And if you read the book Bloods, uh, right in the beginning, in the introduction, there's a, a paragraph about saying there was a massive uh, insurrection at Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. Kaneohe Bay? I know what you're yeah. talking about, yeah. And, and I was part of that. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to have to look this up, man. I ain't know that. Yeah, I was part of that. And soon as, uh, you know, they, you know, uh, they said we were all going up for court martial for we were just defending ourselves against racist attacks. Mm. Anyway, uh, soon as, you know, they put us through this fake trial, you know, saying we were going to get court martial, which we just did not. You know, as soon as that was over, they shit us all out to the front lines. I'm just going to get me straight. And during that time, the brothers and I made a pact is that all we want to do is come back home. You know, so we had each other's back. You know, and that's what the DAP came from, the real DAP. It was okay. like we back. You know, and we were, had decided we were going to come home regardless mm -hmm. of the circuit. Back then, they were shipping us to Iran. To, wow. uh, we were supposed to liberate the hostages that was at the embassy. But that got discarded thanks to a red, uh, sandstorm. The compass couldn't land. Yeah. And I was so thankful for that. So yes, I know what you're talking about. I, I really Yeah, and, and so like, and, and then I come from military family, poverty draft again, and it's not all poverty. Sometimes people just want to escape small towns and stuff like that, but they still don't have the money to just go travel, you know, how some right. of these wealthy kids go go on a holiday in Europe, and so, yeah, some of it for some of us, it's just, we got to escape this doldrum or whatever small town or whatever uh, blight that we're facing, but I do want to move forward to Black yeah. Autonomy Federation. So what, what kind of activities were you involved in with them? You brought your experiences, you know, that you had had, but what was the type of work y'all was engaged in mostly? Uh, basically, you know, uh, 
we were the, you know, educating the community and developing, trying to develop community organizers. Like when I left the Marine, I was against all forms of authority. You just, you know, and that's what that taught me. Like I, I hate all hierarchy, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I, I couldn't put it, what I was feeling in plain language back then, you know, cause I was young and still born when I got out, but I knew I was against that BS, you know, for till now or the rest of my life. I was like, you know, authority is, is BS, you know what I'm saying? You know, and that's what the Marine Corps did for me. Like I saw, you know, the hypocrisy within it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, when I got out, that's how like uh, I got to reading things about anarchism, black anarchism specifically. Mm-hmm. And eventually when I came to Hawaii, uh, I mean, excuse me, when I came to Canada, because when I got out, man, it was in the AIDS. Everybody was talking about, you know, uh, supporting uh, uh, dude for president, you, the Reverend. You know what I'm talking about? I think from Chicago, Jesse there. Jackson. Jesse Jackson, and I was pissed. I mean, I, excuse my language. I was ticked off. Okay, like and and cats that you know, I thought we were revolutionary. They were talking about, yeah, we support bro Jesse. You know, I'm like, hey, this is a crap. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that was not me. And I was uh, I was done with the United States, the whole movement, everything. It just seemed like, you know, they were going for the okie doke. They were going for the mainstream narrative. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I split, you know, and uh, like spent time after, then I came to Canada. When I came to Canada, there was a group online called the Blacklist. And that's when- uh, Called the Black what? The Blacklist. Blacklist. Yes, yes. It was, uh, you know, they had a lot of conversations. Sister Sister Marpissa. Yeah, I remember Sister Marpissa. She was a producer on a podcast and radio show I did, yeah. They started that list. And it was, and for me, it was a way of, I found it by accident and it was a way for me to stay in contact with the comrades in the States because the States is my home, you know, and uh, I always wanted to keep that connection. And by then I was organizing a community organization here, you know, called the Community Action Co-op, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, it was me and my wife, and you know we did all the things for almost eighteen years here in the in the community. But from from there, that's how I got introduced to Black Autonomy. I got introduced to Low Brenzo and Bo Irvin, and uh, uh, their uh, Black Autonomy Federation's uh, ideas were very similar to what I was developing. Like they they defined what I was feeling, and that's how I got involved in Black Autonomy. And uh, we started organizing once uh, we got together. You know, I was part of Canada's, so I was part of the Black Autonomy International, which I will be was making international uh, connections. Now, yeah. I remember a campaign called Organize the Hood. That was Black Autonomy Federation, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, we started that in, uh, in uh, 2013, around 2013. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that was about, you know, uh, building capacity from the ground up, you know, building a movement mm-hmm. from the ground up, you know, because we felt that was really missing. Mm-hmm. And it's like the people in the community has the psychology and the understanding, you know, to really know what the problems are and if have to, to engage this system in a way that is more productive for the masses of our people. And we still do believe that. I still believe that. Yeah. And that, you got to take account for them gatekeepers. You know what I'm saying? Because I've been coming across them, but I'm not going to exactly. delve into that. You know, my... So that, go ahead. Uh, the hood. Yeah. Organized the hood. Even had a theme song. I remember the song is playing in my head right now because we used it as the intro and outro for Black Autonomy Federation Radio. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, like brother, man, I can't think of his name right now, but he did a good job mm -hmm. on playing. You can find it on YouTube. Let's organize the hoods, name of the song. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so, so you mentioned, you know, how long you've been living in Canada and were the racial dynamics and discussions going on in the communities up there, were they similar or in what ways different from what you experienced in the United States? Uh, well, you know, first in Eastern Canada and Toronto, and I was in that area first before I came to where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. uh, very similar, you know, uh, you know, the, the same issues of urban blacks exist in Eastern Canada. And when I speak of Eastern Canada, I'm talking about Ontario and all the way to Nova Scotia. Yes, the uh, same uh, issues of race and class, you know, and uh, black racism affecting the black community, you know, were definitely similar. It's just that uh, the only difference was, uh, you know, Canada spends a lot of money, though. Most of their racism is from on, on the front lines of this country, of, of the Canadian state, is targeted at the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess we'd be about number two, you know what I'm saying? And that's the only difference mm -hmm. that's, that I saw. Okay. Um, for the listeners, I did find a episode of Black Autonomy Federation Radio, and the its uh, title was "Less Organized: The Hood Fighting Homelessness, Unemployment, and Poverty." And um, so, yeah. I'm also seeing Let's Organize the Hood 2013 conference. Um, somebody said they was an attendee. That was over 10 years ago. They put a little clip. So, yeah, it, it's a couple of episodes. Um, here we go, 2014, Let's Organize the Hood conference. How to start a BAF chapter in your city. Bringing back any memories? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, man. And, and it definitely contributed to my understanding of, of the world, you know, may not agree with everything that every person you come across going, going, um, may hold the views they may hold, but they might share something with you and give you a different perspective that will bring you around to on that particular way of seeing things that you, you see the logic in it. So, but I would just want to thank you, though, for being an elder for putting in work and but also contributing to my personal education, you know. No problem. So, so what what's up with you now? Are are, are you retired, Ross? Or revolutionary can never re retire, really. But you know what what are you up to now, man? That you would uh, like to share? Okay. Well, yeah. What I would like to share is very important point. Thank you. Uh, what I'm involved in right now is uh, basically uh, healing from this surgery that I just had in terms of, you know, prostate cancer, mm -hmm. you know, uh, spending more quality time, you know, finally some quality time with my family, my grandkids, et cetera. Uh, I will always be an activist. And when I speak, where I am now, I speak as a black man, as a grandfather, and uh, as an autonomous human being. And uh, I think that sometimes our partisanship gets in the way of really doing what's necessary for the people in general, you know? And uh, I think right now we have to keep moving to a space where we are putting the people first, not politics, our ideology first. You know, let our actions be the ideology, you know, because we got to get back to the community, you know. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, I live in a working class community. I've been a worker most of our life, but I see uh, 
we need communities, you know, because everybody's not a worker in this period. We need to organize in communities, you know, and uh, that is what's missing to me mm -hmm. from uh, the Black struggle in this period, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, putting our communities first, mm -hmm. you know, right now, a lot of them, the people are just left alone. You know, let's let's keep it real, and uh, we we got to get back to community organizing. Yes, sir. I wholeheartedly co-sign on for that. That's what we're trying to do right here in Gaston County, North Carolina, through uh, the NAACP. But that's for a different time. So before we uh, conclude um, this wonderful conversation that we've been having, and I just love you as a resource um, and as a black man too. And um, but what are some of the resources, books or documentaries that you will recommend to our listeners who wish to educate themselves further about racial justice and black uh, activism and resistance? And, and please tell me you're working on that book yourself or your own, because <laughs> you said I was making your I was writing one right asking you all these questions. So <laughs> hopefully we'll see uh, one of your books uh, out there. Yes, well, you know, everybody here keeps, you know, hollering at me about, you know, starting that book, but I'm, I'm getting there, let's just say that. Okay. But, uh, you know, one one thing I will recommend, you know, and it's an excellent documentary, because we were talking about, you know, the, the Black Panther Party, the uh, documentary uh, 41st and Century. 40, you know, 41st and Century. Yes, yes, it's an excellent documentary, and it talks about that whole thing in terms of the, uh, when the cops went to annihilate the Panthers mm. and the aftermath of all that. You know, it's an excellent documentary. Uh, well, in terms of books, uh, there's so many, you know, but um, in terms of a basic book, you know, people just getting into trying to understand what's, what happened to Black people. The book by Chancellor Williams, Destruction of Black Civilization, is a good start. It's a good place to start, you know, in terms of our history and how we got here. It's an excellent book. And there are so many. Uh, if people want to know about, you know, uh, uh, there's a book by Max Stanford, book called Ram about Max Stanford. Look it up on maxstanford.com. You know, all his books are about, you know, filling a lot of gaps that, you know, things that happened before and after the Black Panther Party. Books on uh, Black anarchism. You know, this is, uh, you know, by my comrade Lorenzo Irving. Mm -hmm. You know, want to understand that area. Uh, those are good books. Another young brother coming up is uh, William C. Anderson. You know, he has a new book, uh, Nation or No Nation. I can't remember the name, but uh, uh, he's a good resource also. And I will recommend The World in Africa, too, by W.B. Du Bois, because, you know, what's going on in Mali right now is... Uh, Mm -hmm. We should really be looking at, mm -hmm. you know, you know, Russia is behind a lot of it, and uh, I have, you know, some issues with uh, Putin. You know, like, uh, you know, a lot of people think that he's a revolutionary, you know, which he is not. You know, but people need support from where they can get it, and there's okay. some strong brothers. In Africa, I know that are trying to do the right thing there. Okay. One of General Ibrahim Chouari, uh, you know, and uh, I just hope that, you know, all those involved will keep an autonomous position, you know, when dealing with these superpowers. You dig know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, of uh, the superpowers, even Russia and the United States, they have their own interests. And states always have their own interests, you know, and Africa needs to be involved in its own interests, 
you know, period, you know, autonomously, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's why they, you know, destroyed Libya and took out Gaddafi. Exactly. Um, because exactly. of, you know, him talking that independence talk as a block, you know, exactly. as a superpower, if you will. So, but, but yeah, um, but moving forward. So what are your hopes for the future of black liberation and autonomy? Uh, you know, my hopes are really simple, man. People got to get back. You know, like uh, over the years, and I, you know, like we're living in a period of rising, you know, white supremacy, and it's uh, it's becoming mainstream, and it's backed by millions of dollars, especially in the U.S. And the U.S. has even been supporting all the conservative groups here in Canada. You know, what I'm saying? hey, you hey, know, on, on that note, on that note, though, ain't it something? How no matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat who's in office, um, they support right-wing fascist governments. Like, exactly. I, I know you got issues with Putin, but that Zelensky government, that Ukrainian government, that, white yeah. nationalists and... and, 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 and huh? No argument. No argument. Yeah, so it. I'm saying, though, I'm saying to the people, I, I know I'm not telling you nothing new. But I guess I'm saying to the people, pay attention to how right. how a Democratic Party right now is talking about democracy is under assault. But yet, um, if you check the history books, every administration, including this one right here, have backed right wing fascists, even racist governments that would would uh, bow to corporate interests here in the United States. Am I lying, bro? No, nah, bro, you ain't lying at all. Uh, I don't see no difference really between the two parties. Just one is a little more finesse. You know, okay. she's only one party in the United States. Well, I, I will say this, and, and then I'll leave it at that, and I'll give you the final word. I will say this though, in terms of of my activism as an abolitionist, you know, you mentioned 2013 Black Autonomy. That's when we met, but that's also when I launched New Abolitionist Radio. And I went through several co-hosts before, you know, we settled on the final three. Um, um, but state star, it was only through the Democratic Party that was introducing the legislation to change these state constitutions, you know, supposed to be the supreme laws of the land and, and telling us that slavery been abolished when that's not what your language in your constitution says. So I, I'll say that, you know, um, that that's the only party I see that has been a friend to the abolitionist movement and the agenda, you know, that we have, which is a simple one, abolish slavery in your constitution. And then from there, you give the legal framework for the people who are suffering from the prison slavery to sue for relief. You follow me? Yes. But which party are you, did you say it's the only one that supports Democrats? That only the Democratic Party. You know the Republicans ain't because they neo-Confederates, dog. They lay Trump laying reefs at Andrew Jackson's tomb. You got Ron DeSantis, uh, also a neo-Confederate supporter. So, but yeah, but I, but again, especially when it comes to global white supremacy, I've seen no difference in in the two parties. When it comes to to domestic white supremacy. Uh, one party seems to be more, more getting worse, getting worse. Like you mentioned, it's getting worse and they all out in the open with it and don't even care, but I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave it right there. What, what would be your final, you know, thoughts for the people as we conclude this? What I, what I think is, is a pretty great um, conversation on your life, man. Uh Lastly, I would just like to say, man, uh, if you're a young black activist, activist today, you have to be very astute. Study, learn what the problems are, you know, uh, and have a love for the community, a love for the people. Like all this is about building a better world for all people, you know, not just Africans, you know, but. You know, we are centered in, in the African community. But however you want to do it, know 
that that's the final goal in making this world a better place for everybody. You know, and if you're not talking about that, then I question your motives. You know, if if that's not your final goal, you know, because that's what it's really all about. You know, people just want to live. You know, they want affordable housing. They want to eat. You know, they don't want to live in tyranny and you know, keep those things on your agenda, you know, and keep it simple. You know, it's in the final analysis, it's all about love. It truly is about love. I'll say. All right, bro- brother Ross, you know, you know the door to Black Talk Radio Network is always open. And some of those people that you mentioned that have these new books, man, you know, send me some information. Maybe we can get them on for an interview, you know, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, for sure. For All right. Sure. Peace and blessings to you and, and your queen there. And I want to thank her for helping, you know, you connect with us tonight, man. Peace exactly. and blessings. All right, man. That's all. God bless you. All right, folks. Um, I believe my next live stream will be Tuesday. I'm interviewing the Libertarian candidate for governor of North Carolina and um, going to talk to him about the issue of police brutality. We live in the same county and there are some local issues, but, um, you know, it is a national thing. Police brutality is international. Um, So, yeah, definitely stay tuned to the network. Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed will be back for sure that Tuesday night around 8 o'clock p.m. Peace and blessings to all. Um, Remember to strive in love.